real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you. Today, we're going to be focused on some national security issues. Lately, uh, I've had a, quite a bit of talk about China on here recently, but we don't want to leave anyone out. So we're going to go over to the Middle East. And for that, I have Alan Tredenik on the program. Alan is the president and CEO of Atno Group. They are a global public safety and risk consultancy. Prior to founding the company, Alan spent 32 years with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. There, he was involved in extensive counterterrorism human operations within Canada and abroad. Human, for anyone who doesn't know, is human intelligence, so kind of confidential form and source work. Upon retiring from government service, Alan joined BlackBerry's government relations division and established a team to lead BlackBerry's strategic relationships with law enforcement, intelligence, and security agencies around the globe. And this pertained to matters in national security, sensitive criminal investigations, and other regulatory issues focused on lawful access and market access concerns. Welcome, Alan. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Uh, yes. As we were saying just before, um, you got quite an impressive bio. You've done a whole lot of uh, education. You've been a part of numerous boards and committees. So uh, I think we'll have a really good conversation going today. And as I was kind of alluding to, we've talked a lot about China. And we're going to maybe have a little more focus on the Middle East because I guess that's where most of your career was spent. But I think we're going to end up wrapping everybody into the conversation anyways. Um, but before we get there, can we start with you and tell us a bit about yourself and where you come from? Oh, sure. Uh, well, I was born and raised in Winnipeg. And uh, being a prairie boy, I wanted to join the Mounted Police. So I did uh, after university and uh, did my training at Depot uh, in Regina. Uh, after Depot, I was posted to F Division, Saskatchewan, where I did my uniform work. Uh, general duties, highway patrol. After five years, I joined the security service. I was transferred into the security service just before it uh, separated uh, it, and became CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, in 1984. Uh, and that was after three royal commissions, uh, predominantly the McDonald Commission in the late 70s and early 80s uh, over RCMP security service uh, illegal activities. Uh, CSIS was created. I uh, went to uh, headquarters in the counterintelligence to begin with. Then was after Air India, I was transferred to uh, the counterterrorism program where I basically spent my the rest of my career in counterterrorism, mostly in field operations, but two stints at uh, headquarters in Ottawa. Wow. Well, then after that, it was uh, BlackBerry uh, out of the Middle East and uh, Worked uh, six and a half years for BlackBerry and then said, oh, this is getting boring. I want to go and do something else. So I set up my own uh, consulting business uh, in the risk side and public safety. Okay. Well, maybe we'll start just kind of back. Uh, you're from Winnipeg. Correct. So I'm from Winnipeg as well. I, I, I think most of the people I've been connecting with lately are from there. It seems nobody from Winnipeg actually stays in Winnipeg. 
<laughs> That's what I always say. Yeah, it's a good place to be from. Yeah. So uh, it, it uh, you know, it's a great place to to grow up, and um, I just uh, wanted to, like I said, I always wanted to be a a police officer and. The RCMP was it. I wanted to, to join them, and that's what my focus was, and I did. Well, so when you joined the RCMP, uh, how many years did you do there before there was the split in CSIS and you went over? Well, just about five years in total. Okay. And what what made you kind of decide, okay, I want to go on this path? And was it actually, was it a seamless transition? Like, they're like, you're already in. We're just going to put you over in this place. So that's correct. Uh, well, I'd always been interested. My degree is in political science. And I'd always been interested in this sort of area or terrorism uh, cases, which uh, in the late 70s and early 80s were, was ongoing uh, internationally and domestically. And uh, because of my uh, degree and my interest, the security service uh, decided to take an interest in me. And uh, when they separated in 1984, CSIS took everybody that wanted to go over from the security RCMP security service and brought them into CSIS to start the, uh, start the organization. So my transfer came in just before that and I just stayed with it. Okay. So when you were um, in F division though, did you have anything that really led you into, uh, I don't know, an interest in terrorism though? Because it doesn't seem like no. there's a lot of that there. So no, my, all my stuff was criminal uh, related. It was general duties, uh, the typical, you know, front line breaking enters, assaults, uh, domestics, uh, fighting on the weekends, <laughs> <laughs> that sort of stuff. No, no, it was it was the typical uh, first responder helping helping people out and and going to calls. Okay, well, can you talk a bit about the split to CSIS and then? Kind of your career path on that side of things. So, what that kind of looked like, and in all the years you spent there, um, and maybe even some of the uh, work that you got into. Okay, so the split happened, as I mentioned, after uh, a number of royal commissions uh, on the RCMP and on uh, security and intelligence work in Canada. And the McDonald Commission was focused on the illegal, what they called the illegal activities of the RCMP security service particularly during the FLQ crisis. Mm. Uh, that really, when, when you, what it boils down to is, they call it illegal activities, but it was because there was no legislative framework for the security service to work. It always worked under the Crown prerogative, uh, including wiretaps, right? They, they were signed off by, uh, by the minister in charge of the, at the day. There was no judicial oversight and, and no, no legal framework for it. Mm. The creation of CSIS created that legal framework, uh, but they also believed that they needed to take out security service or security intelligence work out of the law enforcement side, because security intelligence work is, uh, the threshold for, in for investigations is a lot lower because it's proactive. So the investigations are to find the threats before they actually materialize. Whereas law enforcement, it's reactive generally and for prosecution purposes. So they have to collect evidence in a, in a certain way that would be acceptable for use in prosecutions in the courts. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the intelligence side, that's not the case. The CSIS Act also created the, the judicial framework for warrants. 
uh, for any technical intercepts, et cetera, right? That would go before uh, certain federal court judges who would then see the, uh, there'd be a, an affidavit done up, uh, much like in the criminal side, but with a, less of a threshold. Uh, the threshold would meet what the CSIS Act called the threshold, uh, as opposed to, say, the criminal code. Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of where it started. And then CSIS, uh, so CSIS was born as a security service. Uh, and, and it's really, that's what its main, main job is. A security service similar to what people know as the uh, MI5 in, in Britain. Okay. Um, that's actually an interesting point because uh, I just had Scott McGregor on the program. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the difference between intelligence and what they can share and how the intelligence is used by politicians as opposed to uh, police and on the criminal side. And I think you see that a lot right now in the comments from all the politicians where they'll say, yeah, yeah, law enforcement is handling it. Like, but law enforcement can't handle it because there's you know nothing to prove or the chance of them proving something to the threshold that they need to meet uh, is non-existent. But the intelligence is telling you, hey, th- there's a problem here or the probability of there being a problem. So I think it shows a really nice, clear divide in the purpose of both sides of the house. No, that's correct. And we could probably have a program over an hour long on just talking about this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what I will say, uh, the issue for Canada is, uh, is somewhat unique uh, uh, with Western services in that the courts have decided, and I'll use the case, the Stinchcomb case, that the disclosure to the defense is very broad, exceptionally broad. Mm-hmm. And uh, the example I'll use here, uh, which, which affects the, the sharing of information from intelligence services, which need to protect sources and methods at all costs. Uh, so that affects the sharing with law enforcement who must disclose, or the Crown must disclose all that information in a prosecution. So if CSIS develops the information, passes it to law enforcement, law enforcement then acts on it. When it goes to prosecution and disclosure, they've got to say the information came from CSIS. Defense counsel then is able to start trying to peel back the onion yeah. of the of the intelligence and bring it back into the service. What did the service know? How did the what's the services affidavit uh, for any any technical intercepts? Uh, who are the sources that the service is using? What methods do they use? Right, all of that needs to be protected. Now, we do have a regime under the Canada Evidence Act to do that, but it's it's very cumbersome and it's not guaranteed to protect the sources and methods. Yeah. There's there's three things, right? The, the federal court would, so a, a, a prosecution would start. Then if they wanted to use classified information or the service information, the federal justice department would do an objection under the Canada Evidence Act and it would have to move from that court up to the federal court to determine whether that information actually needs to be protected. And if it does need to be protected, then they'll say, no, you can't have that. Or they'll issue, there's three things, or that's one. Two, they'll issue a summary of the uh, information that can be passed to the defense. Mm-hmm. Or three is, no, all of that goes to the defense. And then if that happens, or one or two happens, uh, what we've seen in the past is that criminal cases collapse. That's why we have problems uh, prosecuting 
um, national security cases, uh, both espionage and uh, and terrorism cases. It's it's very tough. You don't want to run the risk. And I'll give you just an example. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You don't want to open that Pandora's box or identify sources or methods. So, uh, give you an example in the UK. If MI5 uh, develops through their sources and methods that person X is going to plant a bomb in one of the train stations on this date, around this date, and this time, they pass that to the Met police. The police take that. They go to the police station or the uh, train station. They see the uh, the individual. He goes and plants the bomb. They go and arrest him, defuse the bomb. They charge him, goes to court. When it goes to court, how they learned the person X was going to the train station with a bomb is immaterial. Yeah. Unless the Crown or the defense knows or has some information that says that information was obtained illegally by the security services. Hmm. Otherwise, because MI5 passed with the police, the, the Crown in the UK is only obligated to go from when the police become engaged. Okay. It's not go, doesn't go behind that. I find even nowadays, um, everything that the police do is uh, kind of on the table. Exactly. So even any interaction with some of these ser- um, intelligence services could be subject to uh, disclosure or somebody trying to, like you said, kind of peel back the onion. So it, it does put intelligence at quite a risk. Um, and for whatever reason, the courts and I guess defense lawyers have been really successful at convincing the courts of this. But um, yeah, it's almost anything and everything is up for grabs, or at least you don't want to take the risk. No, that's exactly right. And it, it boils down to the Supreme Court's Stinchcomb decision on disclosure. Yeah. And we need to figure out a way to to uh, fix that. And, you know, aside from, say, the intelligence services phoning Prime Stoppers or 222 tips. Yeah. I, I mean, if we did that, you know, the police take that and then they can run with it and it stops uh, the price. Yeah. The disclosure stops there. We got it on a tips line. And now, you know, if we're a serious country, we don't want to be doing that, right? I mean, that doesn't make sense. Um, we should be able to intelligence should an organization of the state, the intelligence or security services should be able to pass that to law enforcement in a in a controlled fashion that that isn't put the sources and methods of jeopardy. Otherwise, that's why I say use tips or crime stalkers. So do you think do we have strong enough legislation to kind of take on these bigger cases like you were saying? Um, you know, when you look at like terrorism, you look at these transnational organized crime groups, right? Uh, huge money laundering cases. You never see any of this in the news now. Nobody ever prosecutes any of these things. So is it is that kind of a failing of the legislation? Um, is it just, it's tough because of pr- only prior decisions? Um, where, where are we kind of falling down on this? I think it's a combination of of the uh, of the legislation. It's, it's unintended consequences of Supreme Court decisions in the past. Let's just stench home. Nobody thought of, you know, how it would affect intelligence uh, sharing, yeah, uh, or proactive policing for that matter. Intelligence-led policing uh, that can be affected too. Uh, so it's it's partially that it's uh, investigations of that nature are are typically expensive and time-consuming. Mm-hmm. 
So if we don't have enough resources, uh, either law enforcement policing resources or uh, crown prosecutor resources, then you know priorities have to be made, right? Yeah. So uh, I think I think it's a combination of all of it, and uh, it. I think that the politicians need to, uh, and probably led by Public Safety Canada, uh, figure out and justice figure out a way of providing, and if it's new legislation, then so be it, providing an effective and efficient way for intelligence services to provide law enforcement with the lead information without, with a guarantee of protecting sources and methods. I mean, the intelligence services in Canada are already, and I'll argue in the West, are the most, uh, have the most review and oversight. Uh, now it's internal, you know, it's not public, uh, for the most part, but the, the review bodies, they do get access to all of like CSIS, CSE, all the intelligence, uh, apparatus information files. They can interview sources if they want, they can mm-hmm. interview, uh, uh, handlers, they can interview analysts. Uh, they, they get to see all that information, right? Whereas the public doesn't. Yeah. So, uh, do we need all that sort of stuff to come into an open court? I'd say, no, we don't. Well, and it's funny how you're mentioning there about the resources. I mean, that's the biggest issue we run into on the front lines is I can put together a stellar case with all the evidence and everybody's, you know, cooperative and stuff. It gets to crown and they're just like, I just don't have time. And that's it. I don't have time to run a trial on that. You know, so they'll throw things out. We see all kinds of things get thrown out. Um, we just there was recently uh, a murder that was tossed. I think it was the Jordan decision, and um, anything below that, assault with weapons and so on and so forth. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask too was um, just on the recruiting of sources. I I just think of it in terms of what I do, like on the street. You build a relationship with people, um, so you, some sources you can build that relationship over years before they actually talk to you. Some are going to tell you something because they're about to get charged. For CSIS, though, um, I've never known them to be kind of out there, boots on the ground. So where does CSIS even get intelligence from? Do they have a hotline that you can call or does someone volunteer? So, so well, that does happen. Sure, sure. That's the, They're called walk-ins mm. in the intelligence business. Uh, so that, that happens. Uh, yes, there is a phone number that uh, people can call. But the services out there, uh, developing networks, uh, talking to people, uh, they will even talk to frontline officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I used to do that in Toronto, not just the intelligence bureau, but uh, I'd be out talking to frontline officers who actually know their neighborhoods, etc. Right, And sometimes they would be the ones to say, well, you should talk to so-and-so, or they'd make an introduction, or they'd have in- information. But it's, it's all these networks that uh, an investigator in CSIS would would uh, go out there and make on their own, right? Mm. So whether it's business, academic, uh, in the community, uh, emigrate groups, uh, you name it. It's uh, everybody, the pool is wide for, for the service, right? Depending on what, you're, what area you're looking at. And there are many motivations uh, of why a person will yeah. cooperate. Uh, I, what I used to call putting on the Team Canada jersey, and 
they can vary, uh, as you said, from somebody who wants to get out of a criminal offense uh, or get charges uh, reduced to uh, everywhere for, to revenge on another uh, mm-hmm. another group member or an associate. Or uh, there are a lot of people who do it for uh, for the right reasons because they want to be good citizens. So they'll they'll help. They just didn't. Or they get caught up in things that they didn't think they were was going to happen, and they just want a way out. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of all reasons. Money isn't always one, but money is a uh, is a, a huge factor in a lot of uh, the motivation of, of sources. But it's always nice to get some money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's you know, other sources will will identify uh, existing sources will identify other potential sources. And uh, the service, the service talks to, uh, or can talk to anybody. Okay. Right. Uh, so it's they're out there. You just uh, probably you're doing it discreetly and quietly, much like your podcast, the Quiet Professional. Yeah. <laughs> they're out there doing the doing their job, and uh, it's uh, we have had a lot of successes. Unfortunately, the Canadian public doesn't see those successes. And uh, necessarily, the only thing that usually comes forward are the failures or the uh, controversies. Well, and even on that, like I, I think one of the things that kind of is the most frustrating, especially on the law enforcement side, is how the justice system seems like it's just weaponized against normal, uh, everyday civilians, where the bad guys, you know, we, we go and charge some bad guys with something. Uh, but the core system, or uh, sorry, not the core system, but I'll say defense, somehow makes these cases that it's like, uh, you know, the government is just picking on the little guy. And, and you're like, I've never seen a normal everyday person who just goes to work Monday to Friday, nine to five, get charged with something, uh, you know, and, and it's it's mainly, we can't seem to get anything through the court system. And <laughs> it's super frustrating. Well, I won't say it's uh, I won't say it's weaponized against uh, the normal normal uh, citizenry, but um, I do think that it's a pendulum, right? And the courts have swung, uh, not just the courts, but the whole system has swung one way. It's more to the rehabilitation of offenders, uh, civil liberties side of things, which is is good. We need a balance. But I think it's moved uh, way over to one side. It's got to come back to the middle a little bit. Um, give you an example on street checks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, in my day, uh, the routine checks were effective, right? Not only for intelligence gathering, but you you actually got the bad guys with carrying weapons or contraband on them and, and things like that. Now it's pretty hard to justify a street check. Yes, and uh, and the criminals all know this, and uh, you know they take their chances and and carry carry the weapons, etc. And now we've got you know a kind of rampant crime going on, uh, violent crime, mm-hmm. uh, and it's that's compounded with the uh, the move to you know uh, uh, what I call the catch and release program of of bail. Uh, I think there needs to be a reverse onus for anybody in, that's arrested on a uh, violent offense, especially a violent offense with a weapon. Uh, tell us why you should be coming back into society before your court date. Yeah, you know why? It, this isn't 
bail is should not be the default on violent offenses. And you called it weaponizing. I, I'll say it's a re-victimization of victims. Yes, that too. Yeah. What's happening is we put these people back out there and they'll victimize somebody else. And it's like, hey, why are we doing this? Like, no, no, you tell us why you can come out. Now, the property offenses and the financial crimes, okay, I get that. They're, they're not, it's not a violent offense against another human being. Yeah, you know what? It's funny you mentioned that too, because I've had that discussion on here many times where there, you know, there's all the complaints about who gets arrested the most in society, what demographics make up people in jail. Or sure. I was like, well, but they never say with that who calls us the most. And when you let these people out, anyone, depending on race, age, uh, religion, whatever it might be, you let them back out, they tend to go back to their own community. So you get called by the same people again. So you're always in that community. So that's that's right. And, uh, you know, way back in, I'll go back to the 70s and 80s, early 80s, there was, uh, there was a program of, uh, of statistics that captured that, right? It was race-based statistics. Yeah. So uh, they captured the offenses. What's been missing? And since that time, for various reasons, that fell out of favor, and uh, they weren't. Nobody was allowed to to collect those. Now we're back to collecting that again. Uh, who's who's getting arrested the most, etc. The part that's missing in the, in the, the statistics is okay. So let's do calls for service. Hmm. Let's do statistics on calls for service, area and race. Yes. Same as the same as on the arrests, right? And then you can compare the two. But you can't just take one and then and then uh, you know uh, say the police are uh, are concentrating on one particular uh, demographic. Yeah, we're picking on people essentially. When in fact, all the calls are coming. That's right. All the calls are coming from, or the majority of calls are coming from that area. And that area is predominantly of that demographic. So, you know, I would, I would switch on the other side. If all the calls are coming in from, you know, the, the more, I'll say an affluent type of, uh, uh, community in the city, that's, you know, basically, um, homogeneous Caucasian. I'll just use Caucasian as an example here. If all the calls are coming in there, then that should be part of the statistics. Yeah. And those arrests and, and checks and everything should show the same sort of thing. If all calls are coming in there for service by the, for the police, then that those two statistics should marry up. Yeah. Right? It's not you're picking on one or the other. You're going to calls of service. Yeah. And and I think if we got back to that, uh, it would be that's the evidence-based policing to me. Well, and definitely some of those narratives make it a lot harder for both police and intelligence services to do their job. Uh, maybe that kind of transition us into some stuff here on the intelligence. Uh, just Canada in general, I kind of want to start a little bit broad and get your opinion on some things. But Canada in general, what are we failing on right now? Because you see, we're not part of the uh, some discussions going on around the world. People aren't really including us necessarily in some intelligence uh, uh, groups. But you hear that um, you know we're kind of like a, a back door into the U.S. We're kind of seen as a little bit soft on crime, so people come here. 
can basically, I don't want to say run rampant, but yeah, it's, it's pretty out of control. So where does Canada kind of fit in the global security of things? What are we doing good and what are we not doing good? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll say that Canada the public traditionally has not had an interest in national security or national defense issues and public safety for the most part mm -hmm. until an incident happens. So if they don't have an interest, the politicians won't have an interest. And our politics have morphed into uh, political parties pandering to the public so that they can get votes and maintain power or get power. They're not necessarily looking at what's good for the country, right? The, the long-term goal, whether you're in power or not, yeah. or will be in power, or you know, you're going to be booted from power. It's what's the long-term goal here for the benefit of all the all of Canadians. So uh, there hasn't been a, a, uh, a really an awareness, and um, that's why this conversation started with with basically around China and the foreign in influence. Uh, that's been going on for decades, and it's not just China. There are other countries doing it, but China has has become the uh, the poster child of foreign interference right now, uh, mainly due to well the leaks, which I don't condone, but I understand the frustration. Uh, so it's the leaks and it's the uh, investigative work by journalists who have, uh, who have brought that to the forefront and started a conversation. Now, this conversation is, is bringing more awareness to the Canadian public of what's happening. So what we're missing in this whole thing, uh, well, now we see we've been advocating or a number of us have been advocating for a, uh, a, a public a public commission on uh, public inquiry on this foreign interference. Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's gone past when it originally came up, I was all for, okay, never mind the special uh, rapporteur. This should have gone right to the review agencies because I've seen them in, in, uh, in operation before and they, they do their job and they're, they've got members of, of all parties on it and uh, they do a very good job of reviewing all, all of that stuff and reporting. So that's that's where it should have gone, but unfortunately, events moved faster than they could have become engaged in a meaningful way, and and okay. to the detriment of uh, our, well, I'll call our democracy. So now we need a public inquiry. Do you think that's going to happen, though? I think it'll happen. I, I think uh, last I saw, the there seems to be an agreement now on the way forward. So I think that's that's probably now the the devil's in the details of of how it's going to take place and what it's what it's going to cover but uh you know i'm encouraged there so we're going to start there the next we need is a foreign agent registration act mm -hmm. and that's that would give tools to the intelligence but law enforcement in particular uh to counter foreign interference and now i'm talking about clandestine foreign interference i'm not talking about uh, the lobbying efforts because there's already a lobby lobbyist registry just for some of the listeners that might not be in the intelligence world or follow along in all the politics, but can you explain what the foreign agent registry is, what it is and what it'll do? Okay, so similar to what the U.S. has and Australia has implemented is uh, if you're representing a foreign government or you're conducting activities on behalf of a foreign government, you need to register uh, that so that if you're putting forward articles to a, a paper, I'll just for a, a media outlet, uh, 
in the past, what's happened if your foreign uh, governments would use individuals, uh, and they could be well-known individuals, to write, well, they don't necessarily write the articles. They get the articles given to them, and then these articles are, are put in the paper, and then the public reads it, sees it's from a, this prominent Canadian, no, 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 no. Right? Yeah. and uh, and takes it like that, not knowing that the actual uh, talking points are coming from a foreign government. Okay. So that individual should have been registered as doing business uh, on behalf of this foreign government. That's that's what the Registration Act would cover. Okay. Individuals that are acting on behalf of a foreign government uh, to uh, promote uh, foreign foreign policies and objectives inside the Canadian government or bureaucracy. So, so we already have lobbying. So, uh, you know, there's registered lobbyists and that's, that's the overt lobbying that goes on between, I'll use commercial organizations and politicians and government, the federal and provincial governments. Uh, so it's kind of the same thing, only this will cover uh, not the legitimate lobbying, but the, which is required in a, you know, as, uh, in a democratic process. but will cover the clandestine lobbying when foreign governments want to hide that that's it's them that's that's trying to influence politicians or Canadian policy in some form mm. and they're using they're using individuals or, or companies to do that you, we need to have a registration act that says company x is working on behalf of country y right so that's it's mainly it's transparency if you have transparency then the then it's a lot easier to for Canadians understand uh, the talking points that are coming from individuals or why the government's doing something, et cetera, right? Well, and I guess so if you are found out to be not following these rules of the registry, then you're looking at getting kicked out of Canada. Definitely. They're, well, kicked out of Canada or you're prosecuted under the act. Like uh, The Americans have a, a non-compliance regime and you know, Australians do too. So we, we should have the same thing. If you don't register, you're subject to criminal uh, sanction. So do how much of the problem of foreign influence do you think this registry will actually solve? And I, I'm just thinking when you look at social media and all the, well, I'll say fake news for lack of a better term, right. it's been bashed in my head the last few years. Um, but when you look at all the, the news that's out there and it's you never know the source of it, uh, the people that are talking, everyone just gets in their own little loops you know, of the algorithms. So how, how much of it is the agent registry going to solve as opposed to all the other things going on out there? And I ask because I know the opposition party, uh, the conservatives and a few of the others, they keep talking about this registry. Like it's maybe the end-all be-all. Yeah, so it isn't the end-all be-all. It's another tool. It's a tool in the toolbox of law enforcement to be able to, to uh, prosecute individuals that are in non-compliance. It's a tool for the intelligence agencies to use to say, okay, we need to look at this person X or, country, or company B uh, because we believe they're in contravention of, of this Foreign Agent Registration Act. But also... Uh, potentially allow intelligence agencies to share the information with law enforcement. Mm. And uh, so it's not a be-all and end-all. We're never going to stop foreign influence activities. Uh, I mean, that they go on. That's all part of human nature. It's What we need to do is shine a light on the clandestine 
uh, activities so that the, the, the population has transparency. Yeah. And out of that is the journalists, right? The journalists, for the most part, will be the ones to be able to see this and then bring it forward to the Canadian public. Well, even on that, so you mentioned the leaks before. So some stuff's been getting out to journalists, um, to media in general. My guess, and when I read some of this stuff, is it sounds like a lot of the intel community has uh, put stuff forward and politicians just outright ignore it. Um, or they, when things do go wrong, they start, the politicians start to blame the intel and law enforcement community, even though they say, like, I told you this how many times over how many years. But when someone gets to a point where they feel like uh, maybe they, they haven't been heard, they've put things out there, where, where should people go? What would be your advice to the people who are leaking this stuff? Um, just, well, you know, just keep trying, like, I don't know what else you could do. <laughs> so there are mechanisms to to move that stuff forward. Um, the leaks damage our reputation with our allies. Yeah, uh, it's it's never good when you see a security service or an intelligence agency uh, leaking material like that. Um, now, having said that, I understand the frustration for exactly the reasons you suggested that it seemed like nothing was happening. There are ways, uh, there are channels for that to go forward up the line, but that's also something that the review agencies could have done, looked at, uh, and then reported on uh, in a quiet sort of way. It wouldn't be a public public document, yeah, right? It would have gone to the government saying, hey, you know, this is what's going on and all parties are part of it. So that would have been... I think the preferred course of action um, rather than taking a lot of the stuff to public. But now having it, having gone public, uh, that's why we need a, a, uh, a, what they used to call the Royal commissions, but are now public inquiries with judicial powers, right? So that they can subpoena people and, and demand uh, document production. Okay. And, uh, we need to clear the air on that, and a public inquiry will do that or should do that. I've always advocated for because uh, you know they one of the arguments has been, uh, uh, well, who are we going to get to lead it now? Nobody's going to touch this with a ten foot pole after Johnson's reputation was destroyed. Yeah, <laughs> I'll just I go back. I fall back on the McDonald Commission. They had three commissioners, so I would do the same thing here. I would say if I was Trudeau. I'd be going, okay, three commissioners. We have uh, two retired judges, uh, one that had been appointed to the bench by the Liberal government, one appointed to the bench by a Conservative government, and you have the commission chaired by a retired uh, security professional who served both, uh, both types of governments. And give them the full powers, and they can hear, they can hear classified information because that's another... Uh, knock on these public inquiries is why they can't, they're not going to be able to talk about classified information. They don't have to talk about mm-hmm. it. They'll hold those uh, hearings in, in camera and it'll be formed as part of the report. And there'll be two reports. One will be an unredacted report that will go to the government and parliament. The other report will be the public report. Okay. And that'll be, that'll be the one that, that, you know, everybody gets to read. So it's, it's a similar as the McDonald commission. And we could do that easily. And it could have been done. It could have been done months ago. 
Yeah. And and we're still we're still, you know, dicking around with. Well, do you think um and part of our I guess inability to be aggressive on these sorts of issues um and hold people accountable, do you th- think that's part of the reason why you don't see uh and this kind of transitioning to a different topic, but do you think that's why we don't see any large scale attacks here in Canada? And and maybe just to frame that a bit was um some of the prior conversations I've had on this program, people talk about us as like a backdoor into the U.S. Mm-hmm. And maybe we don't see any large-scale uh, attacks here. Like, And you were saying the public isn't interested until they see something happening. So maybe we don't have the big attacks because nobody wants to draw attention to themselves. They see us as like, hey, you can just go and hang out there. Don't draw attention to yourself. we got an easy border to cross. We can do all these things in this you know, rich country, influence people. Um, so we're just like that easy in. No, oh, we're not as easy as, as, it, uh, as it's portrayed. I mean, hmm. as I mentioned before, uh, the service has, has had, and the RCMP have had a lot of success in the counterterrorism field and the counterespionage field. Uh, we work closely with our five eyes partners, especially the United States. And yes, you're right. We are seen as a, a soft underbelly to the U.S., similar to Mexico. Uh, for that reason, we have to be we have to have pretty robust uh, security intelligence and and the law enforcement. And for the most part, we do. And uh, as I said, we've we've had some tremendous successes. Now, the successes are not always prosecutions. Uh, there are other things that we've we've done where the public will never see. Yeah. Why is Canada never or never attacked? That's part of the reason. The other the other part is some of the, the groups used to, and that's on the counterterrorism side, used to use Canada as a recruiting fundraising. Uh, they would uh, obtain material uh, for support uh, through Canada, and they didn't really want to. It's much like the bikers who won't who won't dirty up the, their own little neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so they. The terrorists, kind of the same thing. And of course, Canada wasn't really the number one target in their mind. It, it was uh, the U.S. So I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that we, it's just there's been no interest in Canada as being, a, you know, why there's been no attacks. I mean, there, there has been the attempts, and we have had attacks here. Don't forget Air India. It was a Canadian terrorist act. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, we have had the the attacks, but for the most part, from my experience uh, during my career, uh, and what I've understood after that is we've had some pretty pretty good successes in the counterterrorism and espionage fields. Okay, that's that's all I can really say about that on, on as far as where Canada fits in the thing. Are we seen as uh, a little weak? Yeah, I think so because of it's a broader military national defense policy wise national security uh policies you know this foreign interference doesn't doesn't help this dithering that's been going on uh so there's there's those elements that we need to correct and and uh, get back on track and then uh, i think we'll be back into the the five eyes and the other thing is we're we're on, on the intelligence side we're a net importer of intelligence mm. Uh, for the five eyes. So what we need, and you've probably seen that before in my uh, my posts, et cetera, that I'm 
I'm a proponent of a separate foreign intelligence uh, organization in Canada, yeah. that, that spe- specifically on the human side. And because we do have CSIS can conduct foreign operations and First, we've got the Canadian Security Establishment for Signals Intelligence. We've got Global Affairs, who does diplomatic intelligence and other, other organizations that can, can gather all that. But we don't really have a, a uh, dedicated clandestine human organization that can collect information from a Canadian perspective and on Canadian targets. Right now, we, we're beholding to our allies to provide us information that they want us to have. Yeah. Not necessarily everything that we want. Do you think that's on the horizon? Well, it's that's been talked about quite a bit. There's uh there's uh, there's reticence to it. Um people say it would be expensive. I don't think it has to be that expensive. It can be very small, uh as long as it's focused and nimble. And um you know, set up similar to what the Australians have, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. Uh, they're a very small foreign intelligence gathering, but they're pretty effective where they are. So I think Canada could do the same. And then we could provide that value added so that we're not always just seen as a a net intelligence importer, but we can export some of the intelligence or a little more than what we do now. Well, it seems like Australia kind of went through this similar stuff, you know, a few years ago, and then now we're the ones going through it. So maybe we got to take a few pages out of their book. Uh, we should certainly look at uh, at how they operate in in this field. I mean, we've um, they've uh, there's often a comparison between Australia and Canada in in more ways than one, and uh, I think that's right. Uh, the only difference being for Canada is that we're under the uh, you know we're right next to Big Brother, so it's like the the mouse sleeping right next to the elephant, right? Yeah. Uh, we've been protected by by the elephant for since the Second World War. And uh, I think we've just become complacent. And again, the public uh, doesn't have much interest in these these issues until an incident happens. When an incident happens, then you see public opinion mobilized. You see political will mobilized. Uh, Afghanistan was a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it, yeah, it's like it, what's what keeps people motivated in all the 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 quiet times, right? Like, how do you keep them interested in these things? when nothing bad is going on, or at least, you know, nothing, let's say nationwide that people have to pay attention to. So, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, is a, a lot of the focus has been on China recently and Russia now. Um, but who else is out there that's involved in all this, uh, you know, the foreign influence and then has a, a kind of a position within, um, I don't know, say not terrorism necessarily, but maybe it is terrorism. Uh, I've heard that Canada has one of the largest Iranian diaspora, uh, mm-hmm. which I never knew. So what, um, what do you kind of see from you know, your experience in the world and, and who's a, a big player outside of China and Russia? So Canada is an attractive uh, location for people to come to from all over the world for various reasons. But one is because we're so nice <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and because it's a great place to live, right? So uh, they do, from time to time, there are elements of, of uh, foreign diaspora that uh, bring their conflicts here or continue to support conflicts from their own countries from which they fled. Now, uh, that's what the security services job is, is to uh, detect any threats 
uh, in in that sort of vein. So there are a lot of countries that have been mentioned uh, in the past uh, publicly. Uh, you know, on India was was one. Uh, uh, definitely Iran. Uh, in addition to Russia, China. I mean, it's it's really it's any country that's that has a significant emigration to Canada will, if there are, I'll say, uh, anti-regime elements moving to Canada as well, they will have an interest in infiltrating those those groups and and trying to uh, interfere in in their new uh, new locations in Canada, right? Uh, interfere by influencing, influencing and identifying and keep monitoring. So that's, that's part of the, the foreign interf interference part is they're, they're monitoring of their own, their own anti-regime elements. So it, it's really, can you, can you say one country is worse than another? Uh, no, it's just the varying degrees of yeah. how much they interfere. Okay. Well, what is um I always wonder though with the Middle East, how much of an influence do they have on us over here in North America? I know everyone knows about oil, but outside of oil, oh, what real impact do they have in the world? Well, you've hit the nail on the head. It's 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 oil and energy, right? Is mm -hmm. is the most part, but and that leads to uh, a lot of a lot of money. So uh, it then becomes commercial business interests, uh, and then it just takes you know they, they can influence uh, in in um, through those venues. But again, that's if it's if it's business, if it's if it's business yeah. and it's money, that's normally that'll be uh, transparent. Hmm. So uh, it's uh, especially if we get uh, legislation that that identifies beneficial ownership. So once once we have that, it's all about transparency in anything that's going on, especially involving foreign countries or foreign companies. If we have the transparency, then we can we can uh, take mitigation measures if there's influence happening. It's when you can't see it. Yeah, that's the danger, and that's that's why all of a sudden China is now the poster child of this, as it was always going on. We just never saw it before. Well, the public never saw it before. Yeah. Now the public sees it. Now it's motivated. Now we're taking action, right? So, if they had done it through companies legitimately and had beneficial ownership, we'd be able to see that. Kind of like what was happening with uh, energy companies in the past. That Canadian energy companies were being bought up by Chinese companies or yeah. mining companies that were being bought up. Well, that was all public. Yeah, but there was no right. That it just never was realized as being maybe a bigger picture here or by them, uh, by the public. And that's why now we have this conversation going, the idea of countries conducting foreign influence operations in Canada is has been amplified so that now the Canadian public at least has visibility on this stuff now. The politicians are now forced to, to do answer to it for some somehow. And, uh, and that's where it goes. It's all about transparency on all these activities. I think to even at least for, I'll say North Americans, the Western world, we operate in such a short time frame where you see China, 
they operate like they're playing a hundred year game. And it's hard for people here to see that far in the future, or at least to have that concept. Um, and just a quick point on the Middle East. It's it's just funny talking about oil and energy, but once we all go to battery cars, I don't know what they're gonna do. <laughs> We're not gonna be using oil, then then they're gonna be really screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Canada has a lot of the uh, critical minerals, right? So uh, maybe it's time for a Canadian government business to take a look at that and say, all right, how do we mine these? How do we uh, bring these to market to compete with uh, the other places that are maybe Chinese owned or influenced Yeah, and get into the marketplace and start start doing this? And um, that was part of what COVID showed us uh, with the uh, the global supply chains are not always reliable when uh, catastrophes happen yeah. and because countries will revert back to self-interest. And so, you know, globalization was a great uh, attempt and there are some, some advantages to the, the globalization, but uh, you also need um, domestic supply chains, or in this case, U S Canada supply chains, manufacturing and, internal supply chains that that can meet all the needs for when the, these things happen. But we also need to get everybody together, not just government and business, but say First Nations. Okay, how do we how do we bring some of the wealth that's going to happen through the mining and oil and gas yeah. and green energy, all of that? How can we bring that wealth to you? How can you have input to help us uh, help Canada? Uh, as as one one nation uh, compete on the world stage and and compete efficiently and effectively. Yeah, and we need to be able to do that. And right now we're we're not we're fractured all over the place. Um, so it's kind of coming up to the end of our time here. I just want to make sure I get one of these last questions in. Uh, your current group, the Atno Group. Can you tell us a bit about what you do? Because I, I went to your website. Sounds super secretive. So <laughs> you yeah. tell people things about things. Uh, but what uh, can you just explain for some people what you do and and sure uh, who you work with? Right. So uh, there's a reason why there's not a whole lot on the uh, on the website. We do uh, we do a lot of a lot of things. But uh, so what I will say is that we concentrate on uh, global risk. So we concentrate on uh, the small and medium size, and I prefer Canadian businesses uh, to help them. And so, global risk on reputation, legal, financial, and cyber risk that they may they may face. So, say mergers and acquisitions of or partnerships, and that they want to partner up with a company in China, for instance, or or Pakistan, or you know uh, Kenya, or something like that. Uh, we we can go and conduct uh, due diligence investigations, and and if there's any dirt to find, we'll find it. Or if there isn't, we'll let them know. So we do risk, we do uh, public safety engagement. So we'll help companies uh, on the public safety side get into the uh, in front of uh, first responders, whether it's police, fire, or EMS on equipment or software uh, or training. We also do that. We do training. We do capacity building in foreign countries in conjunction with partners. So Adno Group is really, it's a, it's a, we call it a bog, a bunch of guys. It's, uh, 
it's basically a number of us from uh, intelligence, law enforcement, military, and diplomatic and business backgrounds around the world that have our own networks. And we come together as needed uh, or as required in whatever areas that we have the strengths in, and we bring those to, to bear. I mentioned we also do cyber, uh, uh, what I'll call cyber resilience. So there's cyber training, but we also have cyber investigation, cyber security uh, platforms. And again, same thing. It's uh, if there's a Canadian company, and I, it's, I don't just do Canadian companies, but uh, I try to help out the Canadian business scene, especially the small startups, the small and medium-sized businesses. And uh We'll, we'll help them on, on uh, whatever they really need. And vice versa with the law enforcement, say, or EMS, they may come to us and say, do you have, which actually has happened in, with the Americans more so than, than in Canada. They will come and say, well, we're looking for a technology like this. Uh, have you seen anything in your travels or do you know of any company or individuals? And, and we'll say, well, we might be, we might be able to do that. So the, uh, what makes us different from a lot of other uh, companies that do the risk uh, is that we also conduct humans. Okay. So not only do we do open information, OSINT source, source uh, collection and uh, proprietary databases, but we'll also uh, do actual human operations uh, against the targets uh, to develop any or uncover any negative information. And if there isn't any, uh, you know, all the more better for the client. We can go back and with some confidence and say, you know, we didn't uncover anything. So this like if a Canadian company says, hey, I want to do business in this region in the world, they can come to you and they basically, you can say, hey, here's, you think you're working with this company, but here's who it's owned by and here's it's, you know, who's influencing things. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's the due diligence, but we can also set the stage. We were partnered up uh with other, with other, as I said, part of the bog, where there are companies that do actual market um, market intelligence analysis for. Yeah. So you want to go into a country X, they can tell you who's who in country X, who you should be talking to, and what the business climate is, and you know the pros and cons of doing business in that country. So that's that's what we do. All right. Great. Um, I want to make sure you get a chance to say how how can people follow you in all your work. <laughs> well, I, basically on LinkedIn, uh, under my own name, uh, the Abner Group does have a, a, a LinkedIn site as well. Uh, we are on um, Twitter. Uh, I don't know for how long uh, on Twitter, but LinkedIn LinkedIn is usually pretty good. Most of the time, our engagement is done by uh, word of mouth. It's it's done by referrals. Yeah, and. Uh, uh, there's not a lot of advertising. We don't do a lot of blogs. Uh, well, you, you may see my my stuff from time to time on LinkedIn, and that's probably about it. Okay. Uh, the, the odd time you'll see on publications. I mean, it's uh, we were we were once uh, quoted in the Intelligence Review, which is a European based thing that does all sorts of security and intelligence reporting. Mm-hmm. And uh, Atno Group was mentioned uh, once, but they couldn't find out a lot about us either. So we were. <laughs> A shadowy Canadian intelligence, yeah. uh, business intelligence group. <laughs> I'll throw up a few of the links when uh, the episode goes up. It'll be in the description below. But um, yeah, I want to say thanks. Th- sure. No, appreciate it. Thanks for coming on today. Um, 
hang on for two seconds, I'll say bye offline. But yeah, really appreciate the time and educating us on a whole bunch of things. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. And it's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you. And you've got a great uh, podcast going. Oh, thank you.